you a fan of this podcast? Do you wish there was even more juicy content for you to sink your ears into? Well, there is. You can become a premium member of this podcast for $5.99 a month and get full access to an archive of over 50 bonus episodes. Additionally, we release a bonus episode every single month. That's a ton of extra content, including my personal interior design diaries, extra tips, my talking about trends, and so much more. Additionally, you'll be keeping us on the airwaves each and every week because your premium membership money goes directly back to making this podcast amazing. Check us out at affordableinteriordesign.com. Click on podcast to learn more and to become a premium member today. high-end designer or a lot of money to get a luxe look be your own interior designer this is affordable interior design the podcast here's your host betsy Hellman. hi everybody i hope you are having a great week it is wonderful to be back with you lots of exciting new questions in the mailbag and maybe you listening have some questions. Don't hesitate to send them in. You can just go to affordableinteriordesign.com slash podcast. Once again, affordableinteriordesign.com slash podcast. And you'll see a button there that says, submit your question. Just click it and fill out the form. I'll get your question. If you have pictures to illustrate it, so much the better. But I am really excited to dig into the questions we have today to say hello to you. Uh, just a little bit of what's going on in my life. Uh, we decided to take advantage of the real estate bubble and put our house on the market, even though we have nowhere to go. And I'd been hesitating to tell my children that we were moving because we didn't know where we were going. Nothing felt sure. We'd been looking for a year, but I just told them because they're younger that we were touring historic homes. They know mommy loves to go to historic homes whenever we go on vacation. If we're in Rhode Island or even just locally, there's so many great historic places like Lindhurst Castle. So I'll take them with me. We'll get the audio tour. Fortunately, at this age, nine and 10, they're both as into it as I am. So they love to like hear about the curtains and the families that used to live there. And they get into all those details with me. My husband could really care less. But fortunately, I have kids who love historic home tours. So whenever we'd have to take them to an open house or whenever we'd have to meet a real estate agent, luckily, I'm pretty much only attracted to historic homes. So they were surprised that the furnishings were not quite the same as the homes in Rhode Island, but they just rolled with it, right? And um, so it's only this week that we wound up telling them that indeed we are moving. And of course, their next question is where? And the answer we don't know is so discombobulating and so distracting as an interior designer. I need to design my next home. More importantly, while I pack this home, I need to know what's going to fit, what goes where. Should I even bother taking that? Should I sell that? Ugh, my mind and my heart are a flutter, but I am taking this opportunity to flex my muscle in terms of surrender and faith. So I'm going to surrender 
and just see what opportunities arise and not operate from a lens of scarcity. And I'm going to have faith that the right thing will show up at the right time because we've had several close calls with the right place that have all fallen through over the past year. And so I'm not going to let it get me down. I'm going to keep my eye on the prize and realize there's something better for us. And that's exactly what happened with this house. This house I thought we'd be in for 30 years. I just love it so much. I still do. In fact, my son, when we told him we were moving, he said this house was his best friend. Oh, but anyway, we had considered New Jersey, like a different part of New Jersey beforehand, and that had fallen through. And that was truly, I felt my dream house. So then we wound up coming up here and we almost got a house in Hastings that needed a lot of work and in hindsight would have been a money pit. And then we found this house. And when I walked in, I just knew like when my husband kissed me, I just knew. It was our first date and I was like, whoa. And I walked into this house and the first floor was very nice, but I walked up the stairs to this house and it had a long hallway with rooms on either side. And I had always dreamed of having a dollhouse when I was little. My friends had dollhouses and one of them had a dollhouse that looks like a house, like a little toy. It just looks like a house, but it splits. So you basically crack it open. It's on a hinge and it splits in two and you can see down. And that's what this was. On the outside, it looks just like a dollhouse, peaked roof. Like if you were to just draw a house, the most simple sort of straight lined image, you would draw the exterior of this house. And then the idea that there's this long hall with all these rooms on either side, it was like my dollhouse come to life. So my husband said he realized that this was the house when he got to the far end, the office I'm in now, that has a panoramic view of the Hudson River flanked by beautiful stained glass. That's when he said he felt all the feels. But I felt all the feels when I realized that this could be my true life dollhouse. And... So I've walked into lots of homes. We've put bids on three homes and I didn't have those feels. I just did it because it ticked all the boxes. It made sense. It was the right move. We want to move. We want to take advantage of these interest rates. So I was like, fine, let's tick that box. Let's just buy it. it it's good on paper, but I kind of want the feels. So I'm going to surrender and have faith that the feels are coming. I'll let you know when they do, of course. But in the meanwhile, let me answer your questions. My first question comes from Lori. And Lori's writing from Indianapolis, Indiana. She writes, Hi, Betsy. I've just moved into a house with my new husband. And I must tell you, your podcast has changed my life. Every decorating decision is well thought out and deliberate instead of buying all the things I love. I love a lot. The money that I have saved asking myself, does this fit my two-word design profile, is more than you can imagine. We both purged almost all of our belongings so we could start fresh in this home. We are going for industrial ranch. He likes industrial, and I love ranch slash western. We have found some nice tables and accent pieces. However, it is time for that major investment, the couch. I know how you feel about leather couches. However, I have my heart set on a chunky leather couch with nail head trim inspired by my favorite show, Yellowstone. Here is my question. We have barely started shopping and are already confused about the different types of leather that are available. We've got full grain, top grain, split grain, bonded. 
Considering how expensive and important this piece will be, I want to make sure we buy a high-quality couch that will be durable and functional, as we also have dogs. Is there a certain type of leather that you can recommend? Thanks again for your guidance. Well, yes. Yes, Lori, as you know, I do not enjoy leather couches. Leather couches turn into a slip and slide for all your throw pillows and blankets. Additionally, when you're curled up on your leather couch to binge watch Yellowstone, which I have yet to watch, but I hear is amazing, then, you know, you get sweaty because fat leather does not breathe like fabric does, especially if you're wearing shorts or something like that, where your skin might actually kind of stick to the leather. Uh, and then, you know, fabric can stain, but stains are something that oftentimes you can get out, especially if you pick a performance fabric. But leather, once it's scratched, can be very hard to repair. For those reasons, for those of you who don't know that I don't love leather sofas, for all those reasons, I do not typically suggest a leather sofa for my clients. That being said, sometimes it does make sense. Uh, so I did some research for you because I have just enough knowledge of leather to be dangerous. I have bonded leather dining chairs. I have a beautiful leather ottoman that has a nice patina, but I wanted to get you the straight story on each type. So I went online and went to this website called Shinola, shinola.com, S-H-I-N-O-L-A.com. And they outline the different types of leathers. So I'm going to just go through it with you here because certainly there were lots of websites that do this, but I really thought that their descriptions were the easiest to kind of understand and wrap your head around in a quick way. So there are five types of leather. The first is full grain leather. Now they describe full grain leather is a top of the line leather. It's crafted from the outer leather outer layer, excuse me, of the hide, and it contains densely packed fibers that have a finer grain. Usually only the hair on the hide has been removed, leaving natural imperfections in the material. Full grain leather without imperfections is known to be very rare and highly prized in the leather goods world. This piece of leather is praised for its high durability. Because of its natural production process, this leather will also slightly change color over time with continued use. Full grain leather is most often found in saddles, footwear, and upholstery. Many high-end leather producers also use full grain in their products. So that's full grain leather, and that's going to be that really expensive option. Now let's hear about top grain leather, according to Shinola. They explain that top grain leather is a cut of leather almost identical to full grain leather. Top grain leather is also taken from the top layer of the hide. But the major difference is that top grain leather has been sanded or buffed so that all perfect imperfections are removed. The sanding process results in a leather that can be easily dyed or shaped. Top grain leather is still considered a high-end leather, and it's used in many consumer products, wristwatches, handbags, wallets, bookcasings, upholsteries, and shoes. Now let's move to genuine leather. Genuine leather is down the list in terms of quality, and genuine leather is crafted from any layer of the hide. There's no specification for it. The leather goes through a good sanding or buffing process, which removes those imperfections, and genuine leather is typically used for belts, clothing, footwear, and upholstery. Then they talk about split grain leather. 
So split grain leather is cut from the lower parts of the hide. It's called split grain because you use the bottom material after you split the hide. It's not as strong as full grain or top grain, but it can still serve as a valuable function, as a valuable material. Shoes, purses, and sofas are most commonly made from split grain leather. This type of leather is also used to create suede. Now let's move to bonded leather. Bonded leather is a term that describes a material that's anywhere from 10% to 90% of leather, and it's manufactured from a lot of different scraps. It's typically used as a filler, and the scraps are bonded together with something like polyurethane or latex. Now, since the amount of actual leather varies greatly with this bonded material, you don't have guaranteed quality, just like you do with the other grades of leather that we discussed earlier. And manufacturers typically use bonded leather for couches or furniture, for instance, my dining chairs. So the quality is not as good, but I found with bonded leather, that is a lot of times on ottomans, benches, things like that, that it's so durable. You can wipe it off. You can wash it off. It's not fussy. It's not temperamental in terms of care, and it's much more affordable. I don't love a bonded leather couch. It does look a little bit cheap. It almost looks kind of like a vinyl because of the synthetic things that they use to kind of adhere the pieces together. Bonded leather is not the place you go for a chic, sophisticated look, but I have young children. I have a cat who likes to scratch. I have a lot of spills in my home. So for our dining chairs, it just made so much sense. So Lori, I know this is an investment piece for you and you're really excited to invest a lot. However, I want you to consider your dog's claws. I mean, I've dealt with leather couches that are so supple, beautiful, but so sensitive that even grommets on jeans could scratch it. So you just want to make sure that that kind of goes with the look you're hoping for. Speaking of the look you're hoping for, I'm glad I've saved you a lot of money with your two word phrase, but I want you to reconsider it because I think you've given me two styles. I don't know. Like you've given me the industrial style and you've given me sort of this Western ranch style. And for me, um, those are two styles. And we know that the two word phrase method is a style word as well as a feeling word. I think that the style word that best encapsulates both Western ranch and industrial would be rustic because industrial is known to have sort of hand-hewn things, things that look rough, uh, pipes, unfinished wood, where you can clearly see the wood grain, concrete, elements that look a little bit worn or imperfect. Um, and that goes really well with rustic, or I'm sorry, with Western and ranch, excuse me. So I think rustic is your style word. It is your compromise between these two looks. And then you still need that feeling word. So maybe that's another place where you could compromise or check in with your spouse and figure out what is our word together? You guys are newlyweds from your email. So I think this will be an even better way for you to get to know each other. And in fact, if you're worried that you don't know your style or not quite sure how you want your space to feel, head over to my website, 
affordableinteriordesign.com. When you log in there, there's a quiz that will pop up and that quiz will ask you lots of style questions. You guys can take it separately so you can get to know each other's individual styles, individual preferences before merging them into this design for your new home. Keep me posted. Let me know the two word phrase you ultimately choose. And I can't wait to hear what grade of leather you choose for your sofa. And now it's time for a quick commercial break. Do you love this podcast? Do you wish you could learn even more? Well, we have an online class bundle. Our online class bundle is comprised of three online classes, beautifying your home for less, styling your home, and the fundamentals of feng shui. Each one of those three classes is between 30 and 45 minutes long and chock filled with visuals and tips things that will help you to style your own space or help out with other spaces. Additionally, with the pack of three classes, you get an autographed copy of my book, Affordable Interior Design. You get all of that for only $99. Once again, that's the three online classes as well as the book for only $99. You just go to affordableinteriordesign.com slash classes. Once again, affordableinteriordesign.com slash classes to buy your bundle today. And if one of those classes sounded intriguing, but maybe you already have my book or some of the other topics are not of interest, you can buy the classes individually at that site as well. Each class is $40. So head over to affordableinteriordesign.com slash classes to get your bundle or your online class today. My next question for today comes from Kirsten. Kirsten is writing from Germany and she says, Betsy, how do you go about coordinating curtains in a home? More specifically, if a home, i.e. a dining room, can be seen from another room, i.e. a living room, how would you go about choosing curtains? Thank you. So what you're describing is an open concept space, Kirsten. And in your open concept space, you do want the entire space. So everything that you can kind of see from that central room. So say I'm in the living room and I can clearly see the dining room. I can clearly see the hallway. Heck, I can even see the kitchen. Let's just say it's quite open. Then you want them all to share the same color palette, choose that inspiration piece wisely. And then you're going to pull your 30, your 60, 30, 10, excuse me, from that inspiration piece. But say you're using 60, 30, 10 in the living room. Let's use my living room for an example. So my 60% is like a wheat yellow. My 30% is now, because I switch it out pretty regularly. It's hard to switch out that 60%, but I regularly switch out my 30 and 10. So it used to be yellow, red, green, and I have switched it out. And now it's 60% yellow, 30% royal blue, 10% bright orange. Well, you can easily see my dining room from the living room. So I took that same color palette. The walls in the dining room are that wheat yellow. And then I've used that royal blue, but I've used the royal blue in 10% doses in that dining room. And then I've used the orange in the 30%. So I basically just switched the 30 and the 10. And then say that we wanted to do something different in the kitchen, something like that. We could maybe use that royal blue for a backsplash. So that way it all ties in, but is using the colors in different amounts and in different ways. I also like to reiterate the inspiration piece. And of course, you're not going to buy two of the same piece of art or two of the same drapes. And we're going to get to curtains specifically in just a moment. 
but we're just talking about sort of the general way to make an open concept space work. So I have a big painting in my living room. It's a portrait of my family. And it's like a playful fairy tale style portrait of us in Coney Island. My husband is the ringmaster. I'm just some kind of fun fair goer. My daughter's a mermaid and my son is taking a ride in a toy train. Cause if you know, Coney Island, it's got so much personality and so does our painting. And it features that yellow, the blue, the orange, red, green, pretty much a Crayola box of colors. It I think features every color except purple and teal. And then I found in the dining room an inspiration piece. In this case, it was not a painting at all or even a piece of artwork, but it's the drapes. So I chose these lively paisley drapes from Pier One that have all the colors that are found in the painting. And again, they omit the purple as well as the teal. Those colors are not allowed in my space, even though they're two of my favorite colors, because they're not found in the inspiration pieces. And then as you flow through into my kitchen, which is open to my dining room, but not to the living room, I have used a bright blue backsplash. And that arabesque tile from Home Depot is in bright blue that clearly relates to the blue found in my dining room. Does that make sense? All right. So now let's talk about drapes specifically. We want the drapes to be a part of that 60, 30, 10. As you heard, you know, I have the brightly colored paisley drapes in my dining room. And in my living room, I have the wheat colored drapes mimicking the paint color in the dining room. And they have a geometric white trellis pattern on top of them. Now, geometric patterns, whether they're a trellis, a chevron, a zigzag, a stripe, those are all considered geometric patterns. And I would not repeat a colorful drape like a solid color drape with a geometric print in each room, even if the prints were of a different scale. I personally, and this is not something I talk about often because it's a little controversial in the design world, but I don't like two patterns that are overall a solid with a geometric white print on top of them in the same space. I feel like it's a little too iterative. It's redundant. It looks like you didn't use any creativity. It looks like you went to the geometric design store and said, I'll take that in blue. I'll take that in yellow, even though they may be of different scales. And by scale, I mean the size of the pattern might be quite large on the drape and might be quite small on the pillow, but it's not my jam to do that. So I might do a solid in the dining room, no print at all. And then I do a geometric pattern in the living room that relates to the 60-30-10 color palette. Say that you did have brightly colored walls like mine in the dining room. Well, you might want to go for a neutral drape, right? Don't mind my dog. Don't mind him. My son just got home from school. Uh, now, say it's an open concept living dining space that's all in one room. So there's no true delineation. It's quite open and there's no walls separating the two zones. I would do the exact same drape, exact same color, no differentiation. In that same room, I keep the window treatments completely consistent. It's only if there's a wall separation. There doesn't have to be a door, even though there certainly could be, even if it stays open most of the time. There doesn't have to be a door, but there does sort of need to be an opening or doorway in order to make the drapes in the other room different. 
that was my long winded way of telling you, Kirsten, what you need to know about drapes in open concept spaces. I hope that solved the problem. In case it didn't, you'll write me again, clarify, maybe send in some additional pictures. I love digging into pictures because they help me to focus my answer on exactly your problem. Otherwise, you're going to get my answer for all sorts of types of problems, as you did with this question today. But now I hope that that answer helped lots of different people rather than just Kirsten. All right, for my final question of the day, I'm digging into the mailbag and answering Monica's question. Monica is writing in from Dyer, Indiana. She writes, thanks for the awesome podcast, Betsy. You have taught me volumes. I'm wondering about installing craftsman style door and window frames without necessarily having a craftsman style home. We love the look, but we're afraid it's going to be an issue when we go to sell our home in five years. Is it considered farmhouse style, which I am not a fan of? We chose and installed the plainest craftsman style frames for our doors and windows, and we would paint them white to match the wall trim. And that will be a plain go with the frame styles. I'm not sure what that means, but there we go. Example two or example four in the attached photo is what I'm referencing. And for those of you listening on YouTube, you can see the exact picture she sent in. So you'll know the exact molding she's referring to. For those of you not listening on YouTube, for those of you listening in your car or while you're doing your dishes, you can always head over to YouTube after you've listened to this and fast forward to get to Monica's question and see her imagery. And for those of you who didn't know we have a YouTube, well, Come on now, guys. Come on now. We've had a YouTube for quite some time, and you'll find lots of videos, dozens of videos, if you go to youtube.com and it's Affordable Interior Designs channel. All right. So you write the former owner did a DIY with the current frames and wall trim and used regular planks, plank, uh, planks of wood, and it looks awful. Our ongoing design of our interior is probably considered casual rustic. Thank you. All right. Now, normally, Monica, as you know from the previous question I answered earlier today with Lori, I would challenge your two-word phrase, even though casual and rustic are perfectly fine two-word phrase, you know, casual is how you want it to feel and rustic is the style of the space, I would just um, make sure that you lock that in before you make a lot of design changes. That being said, architectural changes do not have to reference your two-word phrase. You can move into a place and choose your two-word phrase based on what you want it to feel like as long as the architecture is not so overwhelming. If I moved into a highly ornate Victorian, welcome to my dreams, people. If I moved into a highly ornate, if and when, how about when I move in to my highly ornate Victorian, I will need to adapt either my feeling or my style word to accommodate all the character that's going to be oozing out of the doors and windows. In your case, it sounds like the architecture of your home may be more simplistic or maybe even problematic based on the DIY from the previous owner. But you want to take a look at the outside of your home. You want to make sure that any structural changes you make, like adding specific molding, tie in with the other structural aspects of the home. For instance, I don't want you using chunky door frames if you have three-inch baseboards. Chunky door frames need to go with chunky baseboards. So you need to have 
five inch baseboards or higher, or else you need to change those baseboards out. Otherwise it's going to look like you have these big, heavy door frames with this tiny molding everywhere else. You really need to be cognizant of what else is going on in the home that you're not planning on changing. What do the kitchen cabinets look like? Is there crown molding up top? Is it quite delicate or is it chunky and bold? The craftsman style moldings that you're showing me are, you know, there's four here. And number two and number four, the ones that you're referencing, are more simplistic. Um, on number two, there is a bullnose at the top, which is a slightly rounded trim piece. And then there's a little bit of quarter round right underneath. So it's an extra decorative piece. And then it's just a straight, flat, almost two by four look with another little piece of slim rectilinear trim. And then the door frames just appear to be that two by four again. Whereas number four is much more simplistic, all rectilinear trim, no curves, just rectangles, like a very skinny rectangle on top with that two by four at the top and the two by fours on the side. Now I'm oversimplifying this, but I just want to explain it so that everyone can kind of have a picture in their mind. So it's chunky. Now I live in a space that's typically well, technically it's a colonial, but it has seven foot or not seven foot, seven inch high baseboards that have some decorative trim. So it looks a little bit ornate. And if you had very skinny door frames, it would look ridiculous. It would look out of scale. It's like, did they buy those in two separate times, two different eras at two different stores? So let's look at your front door. Let's look at your baseboards. Let's look at the crown molding. And let's make sure that the doors that you're putting inside these frames also go with the trim. Because if you are putting in a door that has a lot of panels, inset panels that are decorative, and then have a curving piece like this quarter round, well, I would go with number two that also has some elements of curve to the door frame to make it relate. However, if your doors have panels that are shaker style like mine, they have absolutely no curves to them. They do have the panels, but they're just very simple, straight lines. Well, number four might actually be a better fit. These are all things that you need to think about when you're selecting architectural finishes. Architectural finishes do not need to align with your two-word phrase. They do need to align with both the interior architecture and the exterior architecture of your home. So next time, make sure to send me some pictures of both the interior and the exterior so I can guide you a little more specifically. But in the meanwhile, use my advice as a quiz for yourself. Now go around your house with my words ringing in the background, or you can even replay this as you walk around. And you can answer your own question for yourself now that you have the tools and the advice. Guys, what did you think of my advice? Do you have other thoughts? Do you have questions? Are you an interior designer with a different point of view? Write me. Send it to affordableinteriordesign.com slash podcast. Once again, that's affordableinteriordesign.com slash podcast. Halfway down the page, you're going to see a little button that says, send Betsy a question for the podcast and write in. Keep me posted. Let me know what's going on. I can't wait to share it on the air next time. Until next time, everybody. Bye. You've asked for it, and we have answered the call. For years, you've been saying, Betsy, 
You're talking about all these great design concepts, but we can't visualize them. You're describing the picture that the listener sent in of their problem, and we wish we could see that picture too. After all, a picture is worth a thousand words, and I do my best to describe them, but there's nothing like seeing it for yourself. And that's why Affordable Interior Design, the podcast, now has a YouTube channel. Not only do we have a YouTube channel where you could see recordings and clips of these podcast episodes, we also have an Instagram, a Facebook, and so many other exciting things. You should check it out. Head over to affordableinteriordesign.com slash links. Once again, affordableinteriordesign.com slash L-I-N-K-S links. And when you go there, you will see links to our YouTube page, our Instagram page, our Facebook page, and more. Please check it out, follow and subscribe so you can see everything I'm talking about. A big thank you to our amazing producer, Catherine Heller, to Aton and the MBCR House Band, and to Affordable Interior Design, the sponsor of this podcast and the premier place to get an amazing look on a budget. Check out affordableinteriordesign.com. If you guys love the show, the very best way to support us is by spreading the word. Tell your friends or write us an awesome review on iTunes. So until next week, guys, thanks so much for joining us, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye.